Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lauren McGraw. Today, I am speaking with Anita Lynch. Anita is a board director. She's an advisor to many technology companies, and she is well-known as someone who is deeply expert in the areas of technology and data. She was most recently the chief data officer at New Relic. That was a public company that provides data-driven enterprise software. And she's notably, she is one of the um, first African American women to serve in the C-suite role in these um, data areas. And so we're going to talk about that today. She also does quite a bit of volunteer work, whether it's playing leadership roles in her community programs or working with the Harvard Business School, which she is an alumni of, well-decorated and recognized as an innovator and technology inventor. Native of Chicago, Anita is speaking to us from Oakland, California. Anita, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you, Lori. I'm so happy to be here with you guys today. All right. Well, let's get going. I always like to start inspiring women with what are you doing today professionally? What does day-to-day look like for you now as a board director and sort of no longer at New Relic where you were the uh, C-suite leader for a number of years? Oh, that's an amazing question. You know, every day is different. And I'm so fortunate because I get to spend all of my time on things that are personal projects and career related endeavors, but it's all, you know, things that uh, I personally find uh, rewarding and fulfilling and and things I intentionally want to make a priority. So, um, so every day is, is different, but every week is kind of, um, somewhat the same in the sense that I, I allocate a certain amount of time to my board preparation in terms of uh, keeping up with current events. And also, you know, occasionally I'll have meetings with leadership team members. I also advise some founders of startups. And so um, I talk with them on a weekly basis. In some cases, I also have uh, my own, you know, kind of independent consulting that I've just started to to do. And I'm, I'm looking at some educational endeavors like uh, teaching in technology areas of technology and data and in um, in programming for executives uh, that are interested in, in kind of being a better leader or a better board director and and sharing you know some of those skills um, and then I'm also doing a little bit of angel investing and so I spend some of my time also you know just evaluating markets and trying to predict the future like everyone else's, I guess, in, in today's macroeconomic climate. <laughs> yeah, but we're all trying to figure it out. But Anita, you know, first of all, congratulations on being appointed to the board of NASDAQ U.S. Exchanges. I know that is a recent board appointment. That's a pretty uh, premier one. So congratulations on that. What's great about what you're talking about is I really hear you talking about defining a next chapter of a whole 
whole number of things, whether it's investing or advising or, or serving on board. So I want to talk about this next chapter. But before we dive into that, I, I'd love to get a little bit of the, the background. Like, how did you get here? You've got degrees in economics. You're an expert in data and technology, um, certainly in the area of cloud and security. You went to Harvard Business School. So that means you're super smart. Now you're doing the board work. What, what's the bio sketch? How did you sort of, you know, move along in this career journey? Give us a bit of that background. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, when I coach people or if folks are asking me these questions, you know, I, I tell them, you know, there's, there's really two versions of my story. There's the version where looking back in hindsight, it all sort of fit, fits, you know, nicely and neatly together. And, uh, it's very clear, you know, sort of how the dots connected to lead me down this path and I can sort of reverse engineer it. But, you know, there's also the version of the story that is uh, when you don't have the benefit of hindsight and you're trying to, you know, make career decisions and navigate, you know, the balance between work and personal life or other priorities that you may have at any given point in time. Uh, and you don't really know how things are going to turn out. So you just have to have um, you know, the confidence to, to bet on yourself and to have that faith that, you know, things are going to work out for me, the source of that confidence and, um, some of the decision-making frameworks that I benefited from, you know, are, are really rooted in my family, particularly, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about role models. You know, I have, um, several women in my life that are amazing role models, uh, including my aunt, Carol Goss, who uh, was the CEO of a foundation and also um, is very active in board service as well. And, um, you know, she, you know, was the first uh, Black woman that I knew personally uh, in a CEO role and sort of, you know, put that that C-suite aspiration on the radar for me. In addition to role modeling, after you know, folks in my life, I think I also learned at an early age that I could be creative and make decisions and, and sort of manifest things on my own accord. And I didn't necessarily need to always, you know, kind of look to external sources for validation. And the way that I got that was actually through a combination of um, like building up my technology skills uh, at a very early age, I started coding when I was 10. And then wow. also, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story, which I could talk about. It's kind of funny. My dad worked at Hewlett Packard in uh, their, their heyday. And so, uh, you know, as far as like being, you know, the, at the forefront of technology. So in the, the early 1980s, he was, um, a sales guy and he went out on sales calls with engineers selling medical equipment and all those sales engineers were telling him you got to get your daughter started on you know computers and so I um you know I I was home from from school and he came you know from Radio Shack with a TRS-80 which didn't even have a monitor it, it sort of looked like if you remember what you know well you probably you might remember I remember Anita <laughs> I remember <laughs> yeah yeah so so anyway so so you know technology for me was something um I, I became familiar with and sort of got my first taste of you know, autonomy and uh, independent thought and, and creativity there and analytical thinking as well. But I also, you know, in my education, um, I just had the benefit of 
you know, both my mother and grandmother uh, were, were teachers. And so um, in, in the public school system in Chicago, actually. And so for me, it was also very evident from an early age that, you know, education was, um, you know, the path. You know, I, I never wondered, you know, even though I had a very heavily kind of STEM focused education, I never wondered if I belonged there, you know, like I, I had this, uh, this encouragement at home consistently, you know, that it didn't matter sort of what everyone else in my classes looked like, or, you know, if I felt, you know, sort of um, that I, you know, was different. The reality is that, you know, the thing that we all had in common was this uh, kind of curiosity and and um, natural kind of affinity for learning. And so that's, that's how I connected with people and related with people. That's how I built relationships, you know, from a very early age. And, um, you know, I, actually, to this day, a lot of my friendships are still based on, you know, kind of shared interests in that way. What's so interesting about that, I mean, first of all, you know, everyone seems to be promoting coding and technology for their children at a young age today. But when you were 10, I have to imagine that you, I don't know if you were labeled as a nerd or anything like that, but um, that is an unusual thing for you to be doing at 10 years old. And um, that did that ignite sort of, a, did you love it at that point? You know, were you hooked um, from age 10 or where was? Is that something that you came back to later? I absolutely loved it. I think I just at that point did not realize, I mean, we didn't have the internet yet, right? Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> at that point, I didn't realize that, you know, I could, I could have a career based on that. So I, you know, I, I, it wasn't until someone pointed out to me, I actually started out as a chemical engineering major at first. And um, you know, some of my classmates noticed that I was spending a lot of time, you know, talking to other university students in the computer lab on campus. And I was also doing a lot of IRC um, back in the day. I don't I don't know if that's still around anymore, but uh, oh, I, don't, I don't even know what it is. What's IRC? Oh, IRC was Internet Relay Chat. <laughs> So it was <laughs> like it the was, AOL rooms and like yeah, it was places. It was well, it it was all university students. And ah. it was literally so so there were no kind of fancy apps or anything. It's, this is even before kind of you know AOL. So like basically what would happen is you'd go in the computer lab, you'd sit in front of a screen, there would be nothing but you know, it's a green screen, so it's like all text. And there's just a list of universities. And so you would click on like a school anywhere in the world that had, you know, this connection and it would take you to sort of their little platform. And then you had to kind of know a few command line prompts and other things that you could do. And then it would put you in this kind of like all text-based app with chat rooms with other students in other countries. And usually they spoke other languages. So um, I was also into kind of linguistics and other stuff like that. So I, you know, I was curious about, you know, testing out my language skills with students in other countries. And, you know, and then we would just, of course, like ask the silly questions like, you know, what are your favorite, you know, potato chips or whatever, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, but it was just cool because I could do that. And, and I don't know, somehow that was just fascinating to me. So it wasn't until my classmates pointed out I was doing a lot of um, this in my spare time and that, you know, they actually had classes where I could spend all my time on computers if that's what I wanted to do. And I, uh, yeah, and I, I had the courage to, uh, you know, to check it out. I, I took a few coding classes, loved it. And, you know, the rest is history. 
That is amazing. You know, I do remember those days. I remember them very well when I was in college. You know, it was the first sort of summer computer lab and it was an AI lab before AI was the thing that it is um, today. And it was a fascinating space. What I love hearing, you know, in terms of how you talk about it, not just your um, obvious interest and in, in love of technology um, and being curious and pursuing it, but also that you never felt like you didn't belong. And that also is, um, you know, that is a, a, a level of confidence and strength that has obviously served you quite well um, over the course of your career journey. I'm curious as to, you know, you are not just a technology and cloud and security expert, but you are an executive and a leader. So what at what point, you know, were there, were there points in time where you realized that, so you had role models with, you, with your family, Aunt Carolyn, and when did you understand that leadership was something that you wanted to pursue and that you had the, you know, that you were good at it? Ooh, I think, you know, there are probably two answers to that question. Um, I always felt like I was destined for leadership. I mean, I think I'm <laughs> the classic case of what uh, Sheryl Sandberg described in her Lean In book as, um, you know, demonstrating executive presence on the playground. <laughs> I, was always, I was always trying to sort of, uh, you know, direct people to, you know, better methods of, you know, the jungle gym or playing tag or, or things. <laughs> um, when I realized that I could, you know, sort of put leadership skills to use, um, there were probably two phases uh, for that. One was HBS. So when I got into Harvard Business School and sort of, you know, got that uh, validation in some sense, but also, you know, kind of platform, I guess, for, you know, it's, it's really a training ground and it's it's a transformational experience because they bring you in and the purpose, you know, the mission of, of Harvard is really to, uh, I think it's actually the business school is, is to educate, you know, leaders that are going to make an impact in the world. And so it's not to create the leaders, but it's actually to educate them. So when they bring you in, they treat you from day one as the protagonist in all of the case studies. And the way we open every single class is, you know, by surmising like what you would personally, or I personally would do if I were in the CEO's shoes, right? And so that was really a way to kind of start to build, you know, a specific kind of, I think, executive leadership skill set. And then the second phase of it was really when, you know, I started leading data organizations. And I did that for the first time at Yahoo while Marissa Mayer was CEO. And I had the chance to kind of see what it was like for a woman to be uh, a tech company CEO, which was a really interesting thing to observe from the inside. And then, um, and then again, you know, at Amazon, um, where I, I worked on Amazon Prime Now launching and scaling that business, you know, with technology and data. And I had a role model there, Stephanie Landry, who uh, was an amazing, you know, leader and um, and and still is, obviously. But you know, her, it it was just a phenomenal kind of opportunity to learn at a really rapid clip rate. And then and then yet again, uh, once more at um, at Disney, uh, working with several you know leaders there over the course of of my four years, where. 
the the launch of Disney Plus and the whole digital transformation strategy, it it was such a a huge uh, tectonic shift in the way that Disney uh, relates to their customers and the way that they think about managing consequently you know the first party data that they're um that they're now able to kind of collect uh aggregate and and activate um to enhance their customer experiences and so that that was all um an opportunity uh to start to kind of you know and accumulate that uh, that executive leadership experience and honestly i think it's like anything else you know the first time you do it you have to you know sort of take it on faith that people are going to understand it's your first time and, you know, in, in that type of role. And so you are doing your best and you have what it takes. It's just a matter of learning and, and having the opportunity to kind of like, you know, grow and experiment and figure out, you know, what is your style when it comes to communication? How do you manage, you know, all the different priorities? How do you think through, um, you know, the the relationships with your peers and and building the culture with your team and managing talent and all of the things you know that are that go along with that responsibility um you know it it's such an honor to be a leader and i think one of the things that really stuck with me from uh going back to the harvard business school days was something that i heard from clay christensen who um who was one of my favorite professors there. And he, you know, he had, um, he wrote a book, I think it's called How to Measure a Life. And, and one of the things that he talks about is how, uh, you know, leaders are so important because, you know, what they're, what, one of the things that they're doing is deciding how, how people spend their time. And since most people spend the majority of their day you know, working. And so if you are in your leadership position, kind of managing their time, then you're also kind of setting the course for how they're going to develop, you know, what skills they're going to be able to, to build, what um, future opportunities, you know, they consequently might have access to. And so that's, that's a really important thing to recognize about, you know, the responsibility of leadership. And so, that's when I realized that I loved it because I realized that it was, you know, my way of being able to contribute to uh, the betterment of others. And that's really important to me. Well, you've also, it makes a lot of sense. And you've also had, you know, not just opportunity, but, you know, the the just different companies that you've been at, at the leadership helm. Um, you're working with the top brands, you know, premier tech companies, um, also learning from and interacting with giants like Clay Christensen and um, role models um, it, it are just, you know, that's just a, a great perspective, Anita, in terms of what you've both been able to accomplish, as well as sort of how your ideas have formed about leadership. Now, while you say, said that you never felt like you didn't belong, at some point, even though you did have many role models, you know, um, Marissa Mayer and others um, out there, at some point you had to recognize that you were one of you and there is a tremendous lack of diversity, both gender as well as um, racial, uh, uh, ethnic uh, types of diversity in the leadership positions, you know, particularly in technology. So what's the state of play? You're in Silicon Valley now. What are you seeing? There's 
been a lot of focus in this area. I don't need to tell you the statistics. You know them. But what are you seeing? Are the efforts making a difference? Are we making progress? Are we still a long way away from getting to the level of equity that um, is needed? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess I should be clear when I say that I never felt like I didn't belong. It's not because, you know, of I, I wasn't ignoring the reality, which you're, you know, clearly um, pointing out. And I, I strongly feel that there's still a lot of opportunity to improve um, diversity on all sorts of levels, particularly in Silicon Valley, but in, in technology as an industry overall. Um, it, it was that I, I had been kind of taught to, um, to transcend uh, that feeling, that initial fear that I think anyone would feel if they walked into a room and realized that they were the only, you know, X, Y, Z there. Well, you know, I, I'll just tell you that, that there are so many women who speak, um, you know, so clearly about really feeling that imposter um, syndrome. What I'm hearing you say is that you didn't feel that you were in the imposter as an imposter. You might have been one of few or only, but you didn't feel an imposter. I did not to put words in your mouth, but that's how I'm hearing you. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily go into any situation feeling like I didn't belong there from the perspective of, you know, am I worthy? Because it was taught to me from a very early age that it was like literally drilled into my brain every day yep. <laughs> that I that I am worthy. And I recognize that that's not everyone's experience. I do still have my own struggles, I think, as everyone does, you know, with the notion that um, am I good enough? And that's maybe a competitive spiritedness that I carry with me. But I also, you know, when I'm when I, I coach myself and I coach others around, especially women, around the idea that um, it's possible to transcend it, you know, if you, one, just anticipate that it's something that you're going to grapple with um, and just be aware of it rather than, you know, kind of fight it. And then two, um, if, if you recognize that there are other ways to connect with the people who are your peers, you know, because you're in the same room. And so you must be peers um, just by the nature of the fact that you have access to, you know, the same opportunities. Um, and so it's, it's really, um, you know, it's, it's really an opportunity to explore ways that you might not have otherwise thought to explore, you know, how to connect with people. So there's a difference between sort of um, diversity and inclusion, right? And so I think a culture that is inclusive is really good at making people feel like they belong. And the way to do that is to help people kind of initially build those bridges where they can feel safe enough to be their authentic selves. And then from there, continue to demonstrate that their differences are valued. And that's really how you get into the meat of what makes um, for that, you know, often cited research around uh, how diverse teams perform better. 
But how do you change the culture? I mean, just having seen it at a, you know, from a variety of different, very successful companies, being a leader at those successful companies, you know, helping with that success. How, how do you go about changing the culture? Like what, what works, what doesn't work from what you've seen and done? Yeah. I mean, there's a really great example of that. So like, so some of the research that I was just talking about came from um, another Harvard Business School professor, Frances Fry. She actually went into Uber and, you know, this was around the time that they were having some, some issues with, uh, you know, Travis Kalanick and, and. uh, Oh yeah. (laughs) We know. There were a lot of, there were a lot of headlines. And so her, one of her primary goals um, in her role there was, you know, to to look at their culture and and try to help improve it. And I think, you know, without going through the entire experience, because I think she wrote a book on it, <laughs> but <laughs> without going through the entire experience, what I took away from listening to her talk about it is that um, there is no concrete, you know, sort of you know, step one, step two, step three, to improve the inclusivity of a culture. Um, it's it's bespoke to the culture itself. But one of the things that seems to be universal, and this is what, you know, I was saying before in terms of the connections, is that people need to feel safe and then they need to feel cherished. And you can't feel cherished until you feel safe. But the way that you make people feel safe and cherished is by recognizing the reality that they're grappling with. So it's it's unique to every organization because every every organization is comprised of people who are dealing with a different context depending on where they're located geographically, um, what their um, life experiences demographically, you know, age, race, gender, identity, all of these things play into it. And, you know, you have to understand the dynamics of the organization that you have and then, you know, recognize kind of where people might be feeling challenged or and and unsafe and and address it and be very transparent about doing that and communicate, you know, that you're intentionally addressing it so that it's apparent to everyone that it is a priority to make everyone feel safe. And then, you know, going beyond that, where there are opportunities, like a few tactical things that seem to be common that you can do in meetings. And you probably heard about this. You know, um, I've even done it with with colleagues of mine as I've as I've been coming up. You know, we, for example, if there are very few women in a meeting, we might all agree that while we have different ideas, we will help to amplify each other's thoughts like in the meeting. So, you know, woman A says one point and then, you know, the conversation moves on without addressing it. And so woman B picks up that point again and says, well, you know, to build on what, you know, woman A said, this is, you know, kind of an interesting thing I think we should explore and, you know, here are the reasons why, et cetera, et cetera. So like, those are things that I've seen done very effectively. And, and I think, you know, they can work, but, um, you know, it, it's unfair to put the full responsibility for inclusion on the people who feel different or not included, right? Like it has to be everyone in the organization um, aware of the fact that inclusion is a priority and that, you know, it is a priority to make everyone feel safe and included and actively, you know, take steps. And then you can also, you know, include it in, in certain things like executive, um, 
uh, evaluation, um, you know, performance management and things like that. Uh, you know, you can, you can have employees score, you know, the way that they're thinking. I mean, we do this a lot, right? There are all sorts of great place to work surveys, et cetera. Unfortunately, sometimes they're gamed the same way that, um, you know, NPS surveys are gamed uh, at, at car dealerships where they tell you, if you don't give me a 10, it's, it's basically a zero, (laughs) (laughs) which is not the right way to do it. But, uh, you know, but employee surveys, I think, are are also a valuable tool. Um, you can also just look at the patterns in the data and and see. You know, people vote with their feet, right? You know, they you know employees always, especially in these um, in these days of uh, you know virtual workplaces and hybrid work uh, arrangements and remote work arrangements. People can choose to stay or go and and have lots of options and opportunities, especially in tech. Um, to work, you know, in cultures where they feel more included. And that's oftentimes, you know, what they will, they'll vote with their feet and do if, if, if the culture is not a good one. Well, there's so much in what you said, Anita, and, you know, just in terms of um, there's a lot of workforce change going on um, right now in tech, in every um, sector, actually. And I also like, you know, beyond the, you know, uh, beyond the um, notion of feeling safe, the idea of feeling cherished. And then I love the examples um, that you gave that amplifying for women in particular, amplifying each other's um, ideas to be heard in a more, um, more known way is um, an excellent one. And I think, you know, I knew about that tactic um, and then it became uh, quite interesting that that was an important one to use when we heard about it at the Obama White House, even, um, you know, with his cabinet. So, okay, one last thing, Anita, I could just talk to you about so many different things. You've got such a great um, set of experiences, Um, a skill, negotiation, women. So you've been through a number of leadership positions, rising, rising, rising. And now, you know, on the board of NASDAQ, U.S. exchanges. So, you know, a lot about, you know, what makes companies tick and what makes leaders um, move up the ranks. But, you know, it's my view when I talk to so many different women that women, um, you know, and studies confirm this, they still have trouble asking for what they might want. And I assume based on all that you've done that you're very good at it. So what (laughs) are you very good at negotiating and what advice do you give in that? area for other women? Yes. Although I, I have gotten better at it over time. And I think some of it is just the confidence that comes with experience and repetition. The best advice I can give to younger generations of leaders who are looking to negotiate their way into, you know, a better role or, you know, whatever it might be is, to see, you know, the big picture rather than just, you know, the kind of the negotiation um, as a transaction, meaning there's a person on the other side of the table, they have wants and needs just like you do. So, you know, think about it from the perspective of what it is they're trying to accomplish. And so for an example, I will quickly say that if you are negotiating for a, you know, promotion, think about what it takes for your manager to look good and how you contribute to that and what you can do to align both of your interests in order to kind of move forward together. 
rather than it being, you know, something that you want from them and that, you know, something that they need from you. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a negotiation doesn't have to be between opposing parties. You know, oftentimes it can be, you know, more of a collaborative conversation of like, how do we increase, you know, the size of the pie? How do we make the table bigger? Right. That's, that's really what it is. Such great advice. And also how to help the person who can give you whatever it is you're asking for, how to help them say yes. All right, Anita, this has been such a terrific conversation. I so appreciate you sharing all of this wisdom and advice as we close out on inspiring women. Any last closing advice for other younger aspiring women out there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we talked very briefly about the number of women in the marketplace, you know, kind of downshifting uh, from, from leadership or from the workforce altogether over the last few years as a result of um, all the different effects of COVID and other things, uh, lack of childcare. I mean, I, I think I would love to just, you know, briefly take a moment and encourage women to think about their decisions as being like a series of of things that they can optimize over time you may not be able to have it all at once but you know if you if you think about making decisions you know and, and sequentially as opposed to um, you know over over time there may be other things you can do to optimize uh, and prepare to get back into the workforce or to um, stay in touch with what's happening in the market what's happening in your field what's happening with your skills maybe you know take some opportunity to like upskill just I guess don't give up is ultimately what I'm trying to say. I think there are a lot of ways that we can support each other as a community just by recognizing and, and showing empathy, you know, for others' situations and just being honest and authentic about it, talking about it, I think, and and not being afraid to ask for help when you're making a big decision, I think is also another key point. And so we're a community and we have to continue to be that for each other. Well, such great advice. I so appreciate you sharing your wisdom for others. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation. I have been speaking with Anita Lynch and Anita, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.